Perhaps we could start there and you could comment on the deficit that we saw, what you expect to see going forward. And just based on what's already out there, is there any easy resolution to this in sight? Well, hello there, my friends. Chris Marcus here with you for Arcade Economics and quite excited today as we have what I think will be a great roundtable in the quest of trying to unravel where the silver is going to come from to meet the needs of the world in the upcoming years, um, especially as we're in the midst of a debt ceiling situation, which tentatively calls for just removing that limit till uh, January of 2025. So things not looking much improved on the fiscal situation. And then in the midst of that, we're attempting to go green. We already have a silver deficit. We have a silver price that is not really encouraging a ton of new investment to go out there and find more silver. So a lot of factors adding up and we're going to see if we can get to the bottom of this today. And before we begin, we'd love to introduce uh, what I believe is a great panel here, joined by Michael DiRienzo of the Silver Institute over there in Washington. And Michael, it's great to have you back on the show. It was a pleasure to meet you in person finally last year at the Silver Symposium. So welcome on in my friend, good to see you today. Likewise, thank you. And also we have Jorge Ganoza of Fortuna Silver. Jorge, as we were saying right before we hit recording, we, we may be counting on you to go out and find uh, a lot of new silver to meet green demand um, in addition to a deficit that we already have. So Jorge, it's great to have you back on the show and nice to see you again today. Thank you, Chris, and a pleasure to be here again uh, with, with your panel. Well, it's great to have you and your extensive experience in silver and mining. And of course, we also have Peter Kraut of the Silver Stock Investor and also the author of The Great Silver Bull, who's done quite a bit of research. And I know, <laughs> Peter, you're following Watching America and a little bit stunned at some of the numbers that come out like all of us. And just great to have you here as well. So how are you doing today, sir? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me, uh, uh, Chris, and it's always a pleasure. Well, now that we've got everybody in here and settled, perhaps the first place to start, and uh, Michael, maybe we'll turn this one to you first. You were part of the World Silver Survey that came out uh, just about a little over a month ago, and you guys found that we had a 237 million ounce deficit in 2022 talked about how those deficits are set to increase going forward, declining grades and, and and resources being depleted while not as much coming back online. Perhaps we could start there and you could comment on the deficit that we saw, what you expect to see going forward, and mm -hmm. just based on what's already out there, is there any easy resolution to this in sight? Well, uh, thank you again for the opportunity, Chris. Uh, you know, last year in 2022, we were faced with a 237.7 million ounce deficit. Um, we had record demand, record total demand, record investment demand. We had record jewelry demand, record silverware demand, and lower mine production by about 2% in 2022. Uh, I'm sorry, 1%. Uh, that led to the second consecutive year of an annual deficit. Um, and we're also projecting that this year there should be about 114 
million ounces of, of, of silver um, in the supply and demand deficit for 2023. So quite frankly, we're calling for higher demand uh, this year. Uh, we're calling for another record in industrial demand. Um, we're looking at numbers that are just slightly smaller when it comes to net physical demand for 2023 and slightly smaller in the jewelry and silverware <laughs> category. But that's primarily due to India, which just had a banner year last year. Their investment demand grew by 188%. Their jewelry and silverware demand grew by 80% and 27% uh, respect respectively. Um, it'll be hard for them to maintain those numbers, but nonetheless, we think that demand side uh, will be quite strong in 2023. And we just think there's going to be a very minute, less than 2% or 2% increase in mine supply. But that's really primarily because of some projects that are coming online, some projects that have been shuttered, coming back online. And that's how uh, Metals Focus, our consultants, uh, get to that number. So we are looking for another deficit. It will be the third consecutive annual deficit. And uh, we'll be reporting on what we see um, late this year um, during our interim silver report. All right. Makes sense. Everything you've said there. And Peter, you've been digging into this, looking at it as well. Or have you come across any different conclusions to than what Michael just shared there? Are you seeing pretty much a similar picture with the supply and demand where we stand now? Yeah, I mean, I do think that, um, and we can maybe talk about this in a bit more detail afterwards, but I do think that when it comes, uh, sort of the big, uh, the, the elephant to, to watch is going to be uh, solar uh, demand for silver. And everything I'm seeing points to even higher uh, solar demand than the projections that, that we have so far here. So, I mean, I personally think we're going to probably be at least at um, 180 million ounces, maybe even 200 million ounces uh, going to solar uh, in 2023. So I think that um, that's going to help push overall demand even higher and uh, and deficits, of course, therefore even higher. That's uh, like I say, we can talk about some of that in a bit more detail if you want later, but as kind of a big picture thing, I think that's where uh, we're going to see some uh, some differences. Yeah, and it would be good to touch on solar because I know there's efficiencies and thrifting that's allowing us to do the solar with less silver in there. Um, although seems like we may be getting close to a peak of how much further we can go there. Although we will come back to that. Jorge, I'm curious, obviously you're coming from the mining perspective. So you're seeing a lot more on the mining supplies, some of the projects that are or not being continued. Is it really feasible to get a large increase in the silver supply going forward, at least with prices in that 20 to $25 range? You know, looking at the table that was uh, you were sharing, you know, uh, 2022, I believe in the course of the decade was the lowest uh, year, this, this, uh, the second lowest year in terms of mine supply contribution, right? Uh, and uh, listen, mining is is getting a, 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 a anything but easier, uh, permitting uh, uh, investment. You know, Mexico 
Peru and, and China, China, Mexico, Peru are the largest uh, silver producers in, in, in the world. And uh, uh, Mexico has just uh, passed uh, in the coming, over the last days, uh, a new mining code that's quite adverse to, to mining. Uh, you know, uh, what is that going to do to foreign direct investment into the mining sector? Still to be seen, but uh, uh, it's a law that uh, reserves mineral exploration in open ground for the state, uh, puts uh, barriers to, to development of new projects, uh, you know, just... Uh, Peru has just uh, another, you know, top three world producer of silver. It's been going through a lot of political turmoil that has uh, restrained uh, companies from making, you know, decisions into foreign direct investment. So there are a lot of projects, but no, none of them are moving. And, you know, we, we're talking not only about primary silver producers, projects with uh, as primary silver producers, but the large copper deposits that also contribute or and base metal deposits that also contribute as much as two thirds of mine output. It's, it's more difficult to permit, takes longer. So I don't see any, any relief coming from the supply side. To the contrary, uh, supply side, I believe is gonna get more strength. Mining is being measured against a heightened standard by society, and, and that's fine, but we need to come to terms. For example, right now we see projects migrating more towards new frontiers like West Africa, where permitting, you can achieve permitting faster. Those nations are more receptive right now to investment in natural resources, but there is no silver there. You know, West Africa, uh, on the aggregate is the largest gold producer in the world. And we see a lot of the large companies playing there for, for many years and growing their business there. But uh, there is no silver coming out of it, right? Uh, the silver side of the equation is in the Andean Cordillera, uh, uh, where we see a lot of uh, challenges. Colombia has taken an adverse uh, uh, you know, uh, position towards mining. Uh, Chile, it's uh, Chile, the largest copper producer in the world and an important silver producer as a byproduct is, is debating its, its, uh, the future of, of the mining industry and the role of the state. Uh, Peru with its political turmoil, Mexico with this new law, which is I believe quite adverse to investment. So no relief on the side of supply. Yeah, yeah and we'll perhaps break it down into the primary silver miners and also look at the non-primaries, although Jorge, in terms of the primaries, is there a certain price where we, in terms of the silver price, we get to 30 or $40 where that would create a, enough of an impact to get somewhat meaningful increase from primary silver projects? Is it a matter of the price going up? And if so, <laughs> how long would that take? Yeah, well, I think there are two things here. One is... Uh... We're talking about uh, uh, records for gold in terms of nominal records, you know, gold hovering around $2,000, uh, silver lagging behind. Let's talk about a decade ago, to the peaks we saw in 2011 
when gold was hovering around $2,000, uh, silver was hovering around 30. Uh, in, in our case, or cost at the time was on an all-in sustaining basis, $9 per ounce. So with $30 silver, we have three times margins, right? Uh, incredible business. Uh, come a decade later, uh, our costs are now $15 per ounce, no, all in. And uh, uh, we're selling silver at $22. <laughs> so the margin compression for the mining industry has been quite dramatic. Uh, mining is thought to be a hedge uh, and, and provide leverage with respect to the to the underlying uh, precious metals. That hedge has not materialized. We have not been able to provide the leverage. That's why mining equities are lagging. That's why it's difficult to fund uh, exploration. Uh, we would need to see silver. Let, let's uh, talk gold. If we do a, 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 an inflation-adjusted uh, a price for gold today, gold should be around, compared to a decade ago, at least $3,000, at least $3,000, right? Uh, so, uh, you know, uh, th there has been tremendous margin compression for the industry, and that helps explain why exploration investment has been curtailed, right? So where are the new discoveries going to come from? Uh, 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 we talk about record prices on nominal terms, but uh, inflation adjusted, there's just been margin destruction for the industry over the past years. Uh, what price does silver need to see to, to motivate or, or, or generate sufficient margin to see? I think, you know, listen, $22 is not a bad price. We all want to see 25, 30 or whatever. The problem is we are facing permitting constraints. I go back to my original statements. Uh, uh, the jurisdictions where we can uh, uh, seek to bring, uh, you know, those nice uh, silver deposits are, are currently being challenged by by the attitude of, of governments, right? Uh, it's not everywhere, but uh, again, Peru, Mexico, I don't see right now a lot of investment going into exploration. Everybody is reassessing, and these are changes that are happening now, right? Yeah. True. Well, it does not set up an ideal picture. Uh, again, while the governments want to go green, as you mentioned, with the permitting not making it easier to do that. Um, Peter, on the non-primary supply, interesting equation there because silver price goes up, goes down. Not really going to change that all that much perhaps we could say that one of the bigger factors will be if there's a recession or a depression and you could see conceivably some of the industrial demand go down but then in that environment you might also see some of the production of copper and lead and zinc and some of these other metals go down so what could you put in context for people about how to look at the non-primary side of the equation yeah, that, that's a great point, Chris, because you're right. Uh, I think a lot of people don't realize about 25% of silver is is primarily silver mining and then the other 75 percent is uh is as a byproduct and and of that byproduct if you look at a hundred percent of silver mining 60 percent comes from base metals so and only about 15 percent comes from gold mining and then the rest is primary silver 
So if you, and I mean, you know, it's, it's going to have some influence because you can't just turn a mine off uh, overnight, but if there is a, a recession and there is a slowdown of some sort and 60% of silver comes from, uh, comes as a byproduct of base metals uh, and base metals slows down to, to some meaningful uh, degree, then um, yeah, I mean, that that could certainly affect uh, the amount of silver that's coming out of the ground. And um, where's the potential? There's a there's a, a decent potential increase from, let's say, gold, which would likely benefit in, in, in a recession. Um, not immediately. So I think that uh, the downward trend in terms of new total allowances coming to market and and the ore grades we were just talking about uh, to some degree just before with Jorge, I think that's going to be the overall, uh, you know, sort of a defining um, view in terms of what, what's likely to, to happen with uh, with silver coming to market. And, uh, and yes, recession is not going to help. Um, in terms of silver coming to market, but but silver, the silver price itself, and that that's almost like um, you've got uh, the you know these opposites that that are just compounding the problem. So you've got perhaps less silver coming to market and a potential for for higher silver prices. Silver does really well prior to recessions. It doesn't do as well as gold during. But then coming out of recessions, it outperforms gold. And so the outlook could be quite strong. And yet you're going to probably have this lag of, uh, of production. So that could exacerbate even higher silver prices. And um, I mean, Jorge, you can maybe correct me if, if I'm wrong on this, but if if silver prices go up significantly and um, and stay up, um, that means higher margins for the miners to whatever degree, primary or, or byproduct, if if they see that um, these higher prices are being sustained, and they decide, well, you know, this is great. I can earn the same profit with lower grades, lower ore grades. I'm gonna if I if they have that flexibility, they could potentially mine from lower grade parts of their deposit, make the same dollar profit returns or even higher, and and bring less silver to the market. So <laughs> it could actually exacerbate the shortages. That's, I mean, these are just some of my thoughts. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense what you're saying there. And perhaps one that I'd like to, Jorge touched on a little bit, but maybe we'll get all three of your opinions. In terms of the Mexican mining laws, which obviously Mexico being the largest silver producing nation, uh, we'll make this a two-parter. A, do you think that they will ultimately go through and B, if so, or if not, what impact that will have uh, and, and how problematic that will be. M Michael, why don't we start with you on that one? Sure. I mean, yeah, I think that, that there, there, there's always room um, down the road to adjust that mining law reform package that was recently um, enacted. Uh, it's a little better than originally proposed from 15 to 30 years. Um, so there's some relief there, but there's a lot of work to be done. Um, I mean, elections do have consequences, as we all know, and the political impact um, on business and not just the mining sector um, is, is, is very relevant. And I think Jorge touched on it very, very well. It's not just Mexico, it's other countries as well. 
the geopolitical dynamic is shifting, it's changing. Um, there seems to be in some of these once glorious mining countries, a pushback against the industry. Um, that's a problem. Um, and it's really gonna be a problem down the road for those elected officials who don't at the moment realize the importance um, long-term of these investments in mining because essentially everything has to be mined, right? Uh, if you're gonna follow the path of decarbonization, if you're gonna follow the path of climate control, uh, you're gonna need these minerals and you're certainly gonna need a lot more silver if you base this uh, on the projections of some of these governments and what they want to do. Um, we've seen a massive growth in solar installations across the globe in the last several years. We're calling for another increase in PV demand uh, going forward. But if you're not allowed to mine, or if you're penalized for mining the underlying asset, which makes these uh, uh, products work, um, it's gonna be a problem. So um, I'm hopeful that Mexico uh, turns around and gets back to the original number of 50 years in the, um, and, and instead of the 30 now. It is better than 15, but as Jorge outlined, it's not just Mexico. There are other countries, Chile, Peru, and so forth. And you know, we talk about China. The interesting thing about China's silver mining is that it's not one big deposit. It's a series of smaller deposits throughout that massive country, which gets them to this big number. So. It'll be interesting to see how this plays out, but uh, these elections are so important and um, uh, we'll just have to see. Okay, and Peter, any thoughts on whether these are likely to ultimately be enacted and, and how problematic that could be if so? Yeah, so, I mean, I'm cautiously optimistic, somewhat optimistic, um, because I was actually speaking to a, a company, a, a silver uh, producer and and explorer slash developer in the last week or so. And um, they have someone on their board that is very connected and has a really, really good history with mining in Mexico. And um, she is telling them that what what she is seeing is that these laws, as they're they're her insight, I guess, and and, and uh, what you know, the, the kind of rumors going around that she's getting to to get insight on is that they it, they look like they are going to be somewhat considerably watered down from the initial rhetoric, so to speak. And so, on that basis, they feel quite uh, quite comfortable with how it's ultimately going to play out. Um, you know, in the meantime, I always say that um, that doesn't mean that. Uh, share prices don't get whacked and and they do and people don't get afraid and don't stay away from these places and these companies because they do um and so it does take some time to play out uh but again as i say uh you know it, it's almost as though you hear this this really sort of tough talk at the beginning uh, it helps these leaders to to get votes and then reality eventually sits in uh, sinks in um, they realize the, the importance of the industry to to uh, to their coffers, so to speak. And so um, with as I say, I'm I'm, a, I'm cautiously optimistic. I think that we could see a lot of that that initial rhetoric 
considerably watered down and we could be at a at a not so bad place when it ultimately uh, gets gets finally written. Okay. Jorge, anything you'd like to add on to that? I know you talked about it a little bit already, but well, uh, you know, I I operate uh, mines in six countries. And right now, the world's mining code, based on what's just been enacted, is in Mexico, right? For the industry, right? There might be companies that, because of their moment in time, are not so demanding on permits or whatnot. But there are just some crazy nonsensical issues in the law that, I mean, they're so nonsensical that you would expect they get straightened out eventually, right? But for example, uh, what's the most capital intensive phase in 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 the you know development of of a, of a mining project no from exploration through to production the most capital intensive phase is the construction right under the new mining code you cannot use your mining concession which is what holds your your the value of the resources and reserves you cannot use a mining concession as a guarantee for a loan, for a bank loan, for example. Uh, you can only use the concession as a guarantee once the mine is in production. Absolutely nonsensical, right? Uh, as I said at the beginning, uh, the new mining code reserves the exploration in open ground uh, for the state. So basically there will be no, no more exploration in open ground in Mexico. If you have your concession, you can explore there and then they made it more difficult to gain permits for that exploration work right so uh, we still need to see how all this plays out but the law has been enacted right uh, they will not grant new mining concessions no uh, and uh, they're challenging open pits I mean it's really, I find it really a bad law. I mean, as I said, I operate in six countries and, and this is the worst I see. And, uh, you know, we have a very good business in Mexico. I think Mexico is a country with a long and proud mining tradition. Uh, strategically, we'll continue to pursue business in Mexico, but short term, I think we're going to be tactical about our investments in Mexico. Yeah. Well, it's interesting to hear you say that. I suppose that is perhaps the most accurate barometer where someone who's in position to be doing this, at least having to really seriously consider the environment there. And uh, I'm sure that you're not alone in that. Uh, another question I had, and Peter, I'll, I'll give this one to you. In terms of what we're seeing with a divide in the geopolitics around the globe, obviously we have a war going on in Russia. We're seeing East split away from the West. China and Russia, both large silver producers. Do you see that adding to this situation as well, where maybe they say, all right, we're not sending any of our silver over in the West and Europe and other places have even more pronounced issues because of that? Yeah, I do, actually. I mean, uh, a couple of months back, I gave a talk where I said, you know, silver could ultimately become uh, a critical metal, like so many others have in the last couple of years. And it, actually, in my book, I talk about the parallels, um, especially in China with rare earths. Uh, back in 2010, they had reduced their export quotas by 40 percent. 
because they were talking about their their excuse, I guess you could call it, was for environmental production uh, protection. Sorry, uh, and then rare earth prices had exploded higher in in the wake of that, and then uh, their domestic manufacturers had a huge advantage because of it. And so ultimately, the the U.S. challenged that they they took it to the World Trade Organization, um, and they won. But it took five years to, for that to, to play out. And in the meantime, Chinese manufacturers had this advantage of, of cheaper prices and uh, and access to, they were controlling like 97% of, of production and refinement, uh, ultimately, of rare earths. So, you know, we've we've seen any, any of us, I think all three of us here, uh, or all four of us, have seen what what's been going on with uh, with silver, and we just talked about the numbers, how important it is, how how little of there of it there is coming to market uh, versus demand, and um, you know whether it ultimately gets deemed a critical metal or not, I don't think it changes the the criticalness of it, and so based on as you say this this uh, deglobalization and these this polarization of the world, something like what China did with rare earths, uh, for them to do something or someone else to do something similar with with uh, with silver would absolutely not surprise me. And um, I mean, that, yeah, that would be pretty dire in terms of supply and pretty crazy, probably in terms of price. So that is absolutely, I think, something to watch. Yeah, it's a bit of a concern, especially with, unfortunately, the tensions not easing so much uh, to this point. And uh, Michael, question for you on the demand side. You talked a little bit about India that had that 300 million ounces, which was imported last year, which was a rather stunning amount. So far, it looks like in 2023, that number has pretty much dropped off a cliff for mm -hmm. India in the first couple of months compared to what we saw last year. Obviously, we hear a tendency in India to be a bit more price sensitive, buying more and the prices down rather than elevated levels. Any thoughts on what we've seen so far in this last year and a half and expectations going forward the rest of the year? Yeah, it was quite extraordinary what we saw last year in, in India. And India really was one of the stories on the 2022 silver market. We spoke about the demand side, investment, jewelry, silverware. They had an uptick as well as in their industrial production. But that number has dropped off. We just got back a few weeks ago from the inaugural India Silver Conference, where we had a great opportunity to meet with a lot of the, the players in the Indian silver market. And what has happened, Chris, from what I can understand, is there has been a rebuildup of stockpiles of some of these uh, uh, in, in Indian products and so forth that are using silver. There's a stockpile of silver now. There's not the need, the immediate need for the jewelry and silverware sector for the importation of silver. So that may run its course throughout the year. And of course, you know, when you look at the Indians in general, the first half of the year, um, they're not as gregarious as they are in the second half of the year with their purchases of, of silver. Um, and that has a lot to do with the outcome of the monsoon season, um, the wedding season, and so forth. So we still think they're going to be a hugely significant player this year, but there's no question about it. The numbers of imports have literally fallen off a cliff. Uh, if you look at the first four months of, of the year uh, versus the first four months of 2022. Yeah, and perhaps in uh, at least some senses for the silver market, good timing on that. It 
would be interesting to see at a same time where we have declining inventories in Shanghai, COMEX, LBMA, if India had continued at that level, how that might look. So uh, two last questions I have here for our panel today. Uh, one is in terms of the green demands that we hear a lot about. And there was great interview with an analyst named Matt Watson. And he mentions that 115 gigawatts of new solar installations consumed just under 100 million ounces of silver. That was in 2020. And that the Biden administration, International Renewable Energy, Energy Agency, they're calling for an increase from 115 gigawatts in 2020 to 2,000 to 3,000 gigawatts by 2050 based on some of these green initiatives which I understand we have thrifting to some degree going on and, and we're getting a little bit more efficient, but trying to just put some ballpark numbers on how much silver this is going to call for. Peter, I know you dig into this quite a bit. Any, any thoughts on that one in this green demand? Is that a pipe dream? Is it something that is possible or, or what would you say there? So actually a couple of things. One is that uh, no, I don't think that these demands are really conceivably going to be met. The uh, international energy's projections suggest that uh, uh, solar power is going to be seven times the current level by 2030. So uh, that is the electrical output from from solar power. That that means that solar power um, energy would have to grow 25 percent annually uh, by between now and 2030, and um, there are a couple of other uh, bits of research that I'd like to quote. One is that there's this uh, group out of um, Scandinavia, I think uh, Norway, called Rystad, and they're saying that 80% of new solar manufacturing this year will be the two newer technologies being Topcon and HJT. And if I have this right, um, Topcon takes almost 50% more silver per panel, and HJT takes almost 150% more silver per, per panel. So these technologies are actually uh, being rolled out. They, they're being rolled out in a big way, even already this year. And then I also saw um, something from Bloomberg recently that, uh, that said that they were increasing their forecast for China's solar ins installations uh, for 2023. And now they think that there'll be nearly three times the capacity that they had just two years ago. Um, and that's more than the entire U.S. And then you have EVs on top of it that uh, make up more than a third of uh, sales in China uh, last month. So, you know, these, these I just cannot see, there's no realistic way, at least not from the numbers that I've seen, how any of these projections are going to be met uh, anytime soon. I just, I don't see it. The pressure on silver <laughs> is going to be incredible. True. That, that that was the answer that I had as well. And perhaps leading into our, our last question, Jorge, we can start with you. Given everything that we've been discussing and everything that we're looking at here, how does this play out? Are we headed towards a shortage of silver? Or, or what is the what do you see as the ultimate outcome to this five, ten years into the future? Is well, I think uh, for silver, uh, there you know I I've been um, actively in the industry close to thirty years now, 
Uh, and I've seen always the argument of, uh, you know, when appetite from investment demand and then the, the strain that uh, industrial demand uh, bears on silver and then the investment appetite and uh, the big case for low stockpiles and, and uh, strains on supply. Uh, that that's been that is not something new in silver or in any commodity for that matter, right? Uh, but every time, as time elapses, at least over the last uh, thirty years that I've been watching this and and, and so closely, uh, uh, the problem just gets more acute, right? Uh, we spent uh, a good chunk of the uh, panel time today talking about the supply side. When investment demand comes, and it will come massively, I believe at some point, I'm not going to predict when or not, because that's not my business. I'm long every day. As I told you, to, telling you before, I am long precious metals for generations by now. So uh, uh, investors have sometimes the, the timing issue of when should I invest into the sector or not. I don't have that problem because I'm long every day and I've been long for generations. So. <laughs> My perspective perhaps is a bit different, right? Uh, I need to develop assets that can perform throughout the precious metals price cycle, right? And then try to provide the best optionality for the investor at any given time based on whatever your thesis, investment thesis is. Uh, but my job is to provide the best call option for you, right? That's my job. Uh, but Undoubtedly, as time has gone through through my professional life and, and looking at history, just the fundamentals get every time more acute and more acute. And that's why we're here. We, uh, we just talked about supply. Today, it takes longer and it's more challenging. And we face more, more, more uh, opposition even sometimes to, to develop new minds than 10 years ago. Right, so when that a wave of interest comes back into the sector, and and we see clear signs for that, and very strong fundamentals for that, uh, how are we on the supply side gonna respond? I say, uh, what I say clearly to to anybody that today we're far more challenged to advance and meet the needs of the demand than ever before. Than ever before, no, and uh, that just helps aggravate the problem, and the relief is higher and higher and higher prices, no. Uh, but uh, is uh, on the supply side, I believe we are at crossroads. I think society at large is is trying to understand mining, and there are countries, mining countries like Canada, that it's openly saying, "Hey, listen, guys, mining is strategic." And and uh, for the world, no, Canada is 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 doing that, but many other countries are and, and mining countries are are, are uh, going back and asking themselves, uh, "Do we want to be a mining country?" Chile is asking that question. No, how, how what's the role of mining in Chile? A, a, a country like Peru, Colombia, Ecuador, uh, uh, Mexico, uh, so important countries, right? So. I think all of this just aggravates the problem and uh, lends more support for much higher prices because we're not going to be able to respond to the demand, increasing demand. It's, it's just more difficult than ever. 
Yeah, it really does seem to set up a bit of a perfect storm. And interesting how you mentioned that we have seen some of these concerns for a long time, but just growing more acute and severe. And Peter, you've written the book on this. Um, so you've had plenty of time to think about it and research it. And you laid out a great case. Uh, and we'll mention that book before we wrap up. Um, but where, where, where do you see this headed? What, what is the ultimate outcome here? Well, I mean, I completely agree with what Jorge just said. Uh, I think that uh, supply is going to be very challenged to respond. Um, and then investment is going to be the wild card. And I continue to see um, the industrial side of demand to uh, providing sort of a rising floor under the silver price. And that the investment demand is going to be sort of the wild card that creates this upside volatility in the price. And so ultimately, I see much, much higher prices as well. Um, I mean, I've, I've said in the book and I've, and I've used different ways to, to get there, but I think we could ultimately see a peak at about $300 in silver. And before anybody, you know, thinks I'm, I'm crazy, I'm talking about uh, a sort of an ultimate blow off peak like we had in, say, 1980. And then I use different measures, things like gold silver ratio. I use uh, Dow silver ratio. I use home, average home price to silver ratios. And when I use those ratios and I use my forecasts for the gold price and for these these other assets, they, for me, at least all pointed ultimately to about that kind of level. And of course, it would be havoc <laughs> for the entire um side of the industry that uses it industrially because that would uh, you know throw uh, a huge wrench into their uh, into their pricing um perhaps not everyone even as, especially if they use very small amounts of silver but it would still be uh, very upsetting so and i don't expect it to go there and stay there but i do think that we're going to see some kind of a mania phase in this market and uh, and people should should look for it um and you know start sort of uh, preparing the uh, the fundamentals uh, and the investment uh, demand case is uh, are all there. It, it, this is going to be um, this is going to be a silver bull market for for a generation. Yeah, and uh, it's interesting you mentioned, which we didn't talk about as much today, the investment demand, and should we really see a surge come in there? Obviously, would just add to this. And uh, Michael, your thoughts on how this all plays out? Sure. Well, look at on the investment side, well, we obviously had a great year last year with retail physical investment, uh, coins and bars, um, set a set a record. Uh, we think it's going to be extraordinarily strong this year. Um, we think on the institutional side of the investment equation, that needs to pick up steam. Um, but when you look at these governments and you look at their commitments to decarbonization and so forth, and while they don't mention silver specifically. They mention other metals, copper, cobalt, others. Um, you know, at the Institute, we have a saying, and I've been trying to say this as much as possible. If copper is the super highway to decarbonization, then silver is the glue. These components, these applications cannot work without silver. Um, it's the best conductor of electricity. It is the glue, it is what makes these components operate, it, what powers the solar panels, it, the electrical contacts in these vehicles um, are what makes them go. With the complexity of these vehicles growing more and more silver will be required. Um, 
we're talking about EV and BEV today, but what about autonomous driving, um, which is gaining more acceptance and will be a thing um, in the next several years. Um, silver is actually the glue that will hold this all together. I think these numbers that some of these governments are achieving or try want to achieve um, are, 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 are gonna be tough to meet. And I think on the mining side, uh, the silver requirements will be equally as tough to me. So that creates obviously a delta between supply and demand. And you know, last year we saw a 23% decrease in the amount of above ground stocks um, held at the various exchanges and so forth and vaults throughout the world. Um, so that's a big, big number. And uh, I'll leave it at that. Well, well said, and uh, appreciate all of you for joining me here today to dig into this because I, I think it's confusing for a lot of people. Sometimes wonder, well, why is it worth it to stay in silver when you see price come down sometimes with the paper trading yet? I think uh, you all laid out a great case for what we're looking at going forward. Michael, can you just let folks know where they can find your great research with the Silver Institute and perhaps any uh, anything coming up on the calendar they should be aware of? Sure. So uh, silverinstitute.org, you can sign up for our uh, bi-monthly newsletter called Silver News um, at the bottom of the screen on the right. Uh, under Silver Institute Publications, you can download at no cost all of our world silver surveys since the first one in 1990, plus all the reports we put out. Shortly, we'll be putting out a report on uh, silver in green technology. Of course, looking at PV, EV, and so forth. But we also want to examine silver's role in wind and nuclear energy as well. We have a couple other reports coming out this year on uh, silver uh, industrial demand, a five-year forecast, as well as factors that determine the silver price. So it's going to be a busy uh, uh, next half of the year for the Silver Institute. And uh, we look forward to working with, uh, with you, Chris, um, Peter, and of course, Jorge. Um, as we uh, work through 2023. Well, appreciate all that you're doing out there, Michael, and shedding some data and reports and information into Silver, which not really widely available elsewhere. And Peter, could you let folks know where they could find you as part of the Silver Stock Investor? And also perhaps you could mention uh, how things are going with the book. Yeah, um, well, thanks, Chris. So, so things are going very well. Uh, the book since uh, the end of 2022 is now available um, in, as an audiobook. So you have it available uh, in paperback and as a Kindle version and as an audiobook. You can, as you are showing now, you can easily find it on Amazon. And other than that, uh, you can follow me real time uh, in terms of the research that I do in my newsletter at uh, silverstockinvestor.com. Um, I'm also on Twitter. Uh, that's at Peter underscore Kraut. And I'm also on LinkedIn at uh, Peter Kraut. So these are different ways that you can follow uh, what I do on a pretty much on a real time basis. Well, appreciate that, Peter. Appreciate you being here as always. And Jorge, uh, perhaps in wrapping up, you could let folks know where they can find out more about Fortuna. Obviously, you've had an exciting month. A couple of days ago, you had the first gold pour at Seguela. You also had a recent deal to pick up Chesser Resources and um, perhaps you could let folks know where they can find that and anything else that you'd like them to be aware of going forward. 
Yes, you know, uh, our, our website, of course, uh, fortunasilver.com. We are traded in the Toronto Stock Exchange and the New York Stock Exchange as well. And uh, yeah, you know, Fortuna Silver, and we just opened a gold mine. <laughs> People ask me if we're going to change your name or not. But uh, uh, no, we're very much uh, committed to growing our business in, in precious metals. And uh, uh, we like uh, uh, silver as much as we like gold and gold as much as we like silver. So uh, yeah, that's Fortuna today. Well, appreciate that. Appreciate all of you being here. And hopefully this was helpful to people at home as they try and understand some of these interesting dynamics that go on in the silver world, but should be a fun couple of years going forward to see how it all plays out. And just thanks again for being here. We'll wrap up, but hope everyone's having a great day out there and we will see you again soon. 